You're all set? Good morning, everyone. Great enthusiasm on this day. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Please be aware that to get CME credit for today, you would text small j, m, d, and 9. That's up on the wall over there if you don't remember those. So I'm delighted today to introduce Dr. Phillips. In place of Dr. James Stahl introducing Dr. Phillips, he's actually giving surgical grand rounds and hadn't realized that they overlap at the same hour on Friday morning, so he wasn't able to be here to introduce his colleagues, so I will. Uh, Dr. Phillips went to uh, MIT as an undergraduate, and he got his MD at Stanford. He did his internship and residency at the Beth Israel Deaconess. He did his fellowship in general medicine at Harvard and then joined the faculty of the VI Hospital. Um, Dr. Phillips is currently the director of the Center for Primary Care, and he's also the William Applebaum Professor of Medicine and Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. In his role at the center, Dr. Phillips oversees all the center programmatic and operational work and leads programs that are transformed forming education and care systems, and developing entirely new approaches to improving primary care and health. He is the former chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine and Primary Care at the BI Deaconess Medical Center, and he's a devoted primary care general internist there since the early 1980s, or mid-1980s, as some of us have been here. Um, he has championed palliative care services in primary care, wellness programs and innovations to improve the quality of life for patients with chronic illnesses, and he's co-chairing an effort among the primary care societies to bring together the primary care disciplines to consider ways that primary care can contribute to improved population health. With more than 200 publications, his research has spanned disparities in care, screening for infection in office practice, patient safety, end-of-life care, and interventions to improve care for patients with chronic disease. He has been recognized for his excellence in mentorship by the Harvard Medical School Barger Award. He led the Harvard General Medicine Fellowship Program for 15 years and the Harvard Research Fellowship Program in Integrative Medical Therapies for 12 years. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Phillips here to talk to us today. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's really wonderful to be here at Dartmouth. Um, I was thinking my two sons, I have three sons, two of them would have loved to be at Dartmouth and did not end up, they'd have the opportunity to be here. They're very jealous that I'm actually here today, even though it is only for uh, for one day. But this is a part, of, a part of the country that I've always loved, and it's nice to be here, and also to see so many friends uh, in the audience. So um, today, I was actually asked to talk a little bit about the work that we're doing in the center and um, where I think we're headed in primary care, so um, that's what I'll do. Um, just in terms of disclosure, I have no financial conflicts of interest. I am an advisor to a nonprofit called Care Message, which provides a web-based care management platform for at-risk patients using mobile technology. 
What I'd like to talk about today um, is follows this map, and the first is to talk about what the imperative is, and I think we all agree it's aligned with the triple aim, and part of that is improving quality while containing costs. Looking at primary care as the solution, what the evidence is for that, I'm talking a little bit about transformed care, where we're headed and what that looks like, new models for primary care, and then talk about the HMS, our Harvard Medical School path forward, so to talk about what we're doing, and share with you some very early results of some of the work that we've been doing in practice transformation at Harvard. Um, a group from our center had been asked to develop design principles for the future of primary care. We'll be presenting that at SGIM, and I'll um, talk a little bit about that this morning as well, and then end with inspiration from students who um, really are what uh, inspire me every day to come to the office and do the work that, uh, that I do. So why do we think that we need a, re a revolution? Um, as we all know, you, the U.S. has the most expensive system in the world. We have mediocre population health status compared to other high-income countries. And we're facing another number of challenges that include rising health care costs, poor quality of care, overuse of services, increasing rates of chronic disease, much of it related to obesity and also aging of our community. And we think that these things really are setting stage for fundamental change in uh, health care and, and a revolution in primary care. The next few slides just make a point about the crisis in value, and these are probably familiar to you. The first um, looks at uh, health care spending as a percentage of GDP, so you see the percentage along the x-axis, and the y-axis is life expectancy. We're the ones in red, which show that we um, are leading in terms of percent GDP, but we're actually trailing in terms of life expectancy, an important measure of quality of care. This next slide sends a similar message. It does make the point of what we actually spend on health care in this country, though. Along the x-axis is the number of dollars that are spent per capita um, in health care in the United States and in, comparable, in comparison countries. And you can see that we're far beyond uh, most other countries at between eight and $10,000 per capita per year. This results in a total cost of about $3.2 which is where we are now in terms of uh, health care spending. And you can see there are many countries, and it's not just European countries, but, but many others that are actually providing uh, better quality, at least judged in terms of life expectancy, um, at lower cost. <laughs> I think we all know what primary care is, but just to share again the Institute of Medicine definition, primary care is integrated accessible health care services by clinicians who are accountable for addressing a large majority of personal health care needs, developing a sustained partnership with patients, and practicing in the context of family and community. And we know what this really translates into is first access care, continuous care by somebody that you know and trust, and comprehensive care where most of your primary care needs can be met by that person or by the team caring for you. There's now considerable data on the value of primary care, and I won't spend too much time um, on the evidence, but first to say that uh, Barbara Starfield works and others have shown that geographic areas with better access to care deliver both better health, health outcomes and better quality, and I'll show you some data on that. They do it at lower cost and also are able to achieve, achieve more equitable health outcomes. 
each of the primary functions of primary care, which include access, continuity, comprehensive, and coordination, each of them are associated with value in that there's a return on investment on, on each of these, and they're associated with imp improved care processes and outcomes. And then just a final comment is as we start thinking really about moving primary care from individual um, practitioner-based care to teams, we know that um, non-physician health workers can serve many of the same functions as, um, as physicians do with equal or greater reliability and at lower costs. And so working as a team uh, uh, creates value, and I'll show you some examples of that. These next two slides are based on Barbara Starfield's work, and they look at the relationship between access to primary care and quality. The, in each slide, you'll see the density of primary care physicians along the x-axis, and the y-axis will either um, uh, be quality or, or life expectancy. And um, what you see here is that there's a, a clear trend that as the density of primary care physicians goes up, as there's better access to primary care, measures of quality go up as well. This was actually done in states across the United States, but a similar slide can be created that looks at um, the United States compared to other uh, countries internationally. Um, this looks at access and cost, so I, I misstated it's not life expectancy, but actually cost that's on the y-axis. And you can see that as cost, as um, the density of primary care physician increases, once again, costs go down. Um, and this, we think, is because primary care physicians are able to provide more comprehensive care. Potentially, there's less use of specialists, there are fewer hospitalizations, and all of these things actually results in, in lower costs. So it's where investing in primary care can both lower costs and save lives. Where, is we, where are we headed? Um, there's an interesting article written by um, Homer and Barron several years ago that talked about transformed care, and I think it is a model for where we're going. We need care that has easy, that's easy access, that's coordinated and comprehensive, where there's effective management of information that supports performance improvement, where patients and families become care partners in the practice, and where physicians possess core skills to function within these new practices, and these actually become, I think, important curricular elements for medical schools and, um, and schools for other health professionals, um, which requires skills and experts as an expert diagnostician, a patient advocate, effective communicator, an effective team leader and teammate, a systems manager, change agent, and a practitioner accountable for efficient, accessible care. So you can see that we're certainly being asked to do a lot. There are many new models of care delivery that are really helping to support us as we make this transformation. Um, these are now supported by legislative reform. In fact, the federal government has become a big force that's helping to um, lead a transformation of health care. And this has been happening largely through uh, the institution of accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, uh, and new ways of paying for primary care. I'll talk about one of the programs that CMI has, but now people estimate that 30 to 40 million people in this country are now getting their care through patient-centered medical homes. Med patient-centered medical home demonstration projects have shown promising reductions in costs, improvements in quality, which are attributable, we think, in part to effective teamwork. I think of patient-centered medical home transformation almost like quality improvement, meaning not every time that you do it will you get the outcome that you hope for. So in fact, there is some variability <clears throat> as you look at um, outcome studies for patient-centered medical home, and the federal work, which I'll describe, actually um, demonstrates that. 
The next two slides were given to me by Soft Baton, who spends time working um, with CMMI, and is about their large initiative, the Comprehensive Primary Care um, Initiative, where they're working in four, over 400 practices across the country in um, transforming primary care. To go through this quickly, there's a statement about a theory of change um, that um, provision of comprehensive primary care, multi-payment, multi-payer um, payment reform, continued use of data and meaningful use of health information technology will actually lead to um, better, lower spending and healthier people. You can see the different elements of care transformation, <coughs> excuse me, and these include access and continuity, planned care for chronic conditions and preventive care, risk stratified care management, patient and caregiver engagement, and coordination of care across the medical neighborhood. You'll, mention, you'll notice that these are many elements that you expect within a patient-centered medical home. They put together a four-year model that's going on in four states um, across the entire state, and then portions of three states is actually not involved uh, here in uh, involving practices here in New Hampshire. But they are, as I mentioned, having doing this in 440 practices. It involves over 2.7 million patients, and CMMI actually has the um, potential to, if they do find that there's cost improvement based on this initiative, to really change the way that uh, Medicare is paying for, um, for primary care. The patient redesign components include a per member per month um, uh, care management fee, as well as shared savings that are related to performance improvement. So what they found, this is a four-year study. They didn't expect to see, um, to achieve the results within the first two years, but they have been reporting out year by year. And what they've seen in the first two years is that they've had a savings of about 2% um, in gross savings. This has amounted to about $57 million. It actually happens to be almost equal precisely low, the dollars that have been invested in care management and the dollars that are being paid to practices in per member per month fees. So net, there's no... Um, clear savings from this uh, as of yet. Um, however, of the um, practices, mo almost all of them reported uh, continuous quality measures. And as I'll share with you in a moment, they, what they demonstrate is improvement in quality in a number of domains. This slide actually shows that there's vari variability in the impact of the patient-centered medical home transformation across different states. And you can see some states were um, able to achieve significant savings, for instance, in Oklahoma was zero point, was 5.4%, uh, whereas other states um, achieved significant losses. So it was, really does suggest that there are different ways of going about this. And right now they're doing analyses to try to understand what differentiated those who um, really succeeded from those who weren't able to succeed. And the highlights really in terms of quality show that they've um, had electronic clinical quality measures, things like colorectal cancer screening, where they've shown uh, clear improvement, claims-based quality measures since as, as, such as hospitalizations and readmissions, where they've seen improvement, and then patient experience of care, where uh, patients rated the care they received from practitioners more highly. And this was actually a controlled study where they used a wait list control, so they actually took practices who had wanted to get get into the initiative were um, not able to be accommodated but became essentially control or comparison practices. <laughs> 
So um, with this in mind, what I'd really like to turn to is talking about what we are doing within um, the Harvard Medical School Center for uh, Primary Care. It's actually wonderful to see Andrew Morris Singer here because actually Andrew had a lot to do with the startup of um, the Center for Primary Care. The story is that um, in 2008, the dean of the medical school was forced to cut costs because of what was happening in financial markets and actually X'd out what was a division of primary care at the medical school. Um, those of us who were at the hospitals sort of shrugged our shoulders, um, but the students at the medical school and residents saw this as an opportunity to really try to leverage um, sort of this action into having Harvard refocus attention on primary care. And Andrew and others actually led a petition drive that was done in a very positive um, and supportive way towards the dean. The dean ended up creating a task force to, to think about how Harvard could strengthen primary care. Um, and the experience of its students. And that task force came up with a strategy, a strategic plan, which was then um, f uh, taken to donors by the, by the dean and was eventually funded. I think Al Mully was on that task force, as I recall, and um, as it was an important player as we were sort of getting this initiative started, Andrew was on the, on the task force as well. And what we actually focused on as we thought about um, what would make primary care more attractive and um, and strengthened it at Harvard Medical School was focusing on several things. One was on community building. What had happened as we built, created the center is it really resulted from community action. We wanted to continue to support that community action. We had town hall meetings where we shared um, sort of our thoughts and the task force thoughts and got feedback from the community to eventually come up with something that was really uh, endorsed by the community. So we wanted to continue to focus on engaging the community. We wanted to focus on leadership. Harvard trains leaders. I think Harvard is not unique as a medical school in wanting to train leaders. I know Dartmouth does the same, um, but we really wanted to stress the opportunities for leadership in general medicine and in primary care. Um, we also wanted to focus on uh, innovation. We saw the primary care as a field that needed innovation. Students are looking to create change and have impact, and they needed to see the links between the opportunity to create innovations and uh, primary care. And then, of course, we wanted to focus on uh, education as well and how we might strengthen educational programs. How that translated into a work plan is that there were certain key drivers that we paid uh, a lot of attention to. One was redesign of the teaching practices. Um, our teaching practices at our hospitals tended to be our most under-resourced primary care practices, um, often uh, with physicians who were burned out or, or challenged in their job. Um, and we could, couldn't see how students could actually be drawn to primary care unless we could do something about those teaching practices. We also wanted students to spend more time in community health centers, and so wanted to get them sort of more engaged in teaching. So redesigning teaching practices is one of our areas of focus. We wanted to create innovation and leadership programs, just for the reason that I mentioned, innovation and leadership really being key to attracting students, but also a necessary ingredient of transformation. We wanted to create new approaches to education, wanted to do some research both on systems because we thought that what Harvard could potentially, a role that we could potentially fill would be to um, be sort of a knowledge and resource source um, across the country, if not um, internationally, for what best practices are in primary care. So do research on those systems and also look at the impact of new payment models on, on um, how primary care is practiced. And then finally, as I mentioned, community engagement. 
We initially had within the, um, I, I mentioned the dean was able to win a gift um, which came to the medical school which established the center. Within that was a substantial amount of money, I think close to $8 million, that was meant to be focused on innovation and care. And we as a committee had sort of imagined that those dollars would be spent in the typical NIH kind of way where we'd have our 21s or small planning grants, we'd then have larger grants and there would be grants that would be a, a way of distributing money and hopefully changing the way that care is practiced. But as we got teams together and thought about how we might best apply these dollars, um, people asked whether that had been a method that had been successful in the past and in fact it had not been successful at producing sustainable transformation. And so rather than doing that, we elected to take a substantial amount of money, offer it to the hospitals to be matched by the hospitals with the idea that that money would then be used to participate in an academic collaborative where together we would transform care. As it happens, all six of the Harvard hospitals bought into that. Um, we actually provided up to a million per hospital. It was matched by a million that came from the hospital. The million from the hospital was largely used to build out primary care teams, whereas the dollars from the center were primarily used to um, uh, pay faculty support, project management uh, skills, and things like that. And what we did is because we wanted to involve the teaching practices, we asked the hospitals to identify teaching practices as well, but also we wanted to include community health centers. So we asked them each to identify one to three community health centers who would be part of this initiative. And we ended up across six different entities. So this is the Brigham and Mass General and BIDMC, Mount Auburn Children's, Cambridge Health Alliance. Across um, all of these, we identified 19 practices that were sort of volunteered um, to participate by their by their hospitals and practice leadership. Six of them were hospital-based, actually the practice that I worked in, which was Healthcare Associates, large teaching practice at Beth Israel Deaconess, but others were community health centers. So at Beth Israel, it was Bowdoin Street, which is um, in Dorchester. It was um, Dimmick, which is in Roxbury. So a number of community health centers that were underserved areas. I include 13 of those altogether, and as it happened, it also spanned 11 residency programs that went from med-peds, pediatrics, family medicine, and, and internal medicine. Our goals for this really became, if you signed on to do this, you had to commit to team-based care and creating effective functional teams within your practice. You had to commit to care management and coordination, and you had to commit to um, strengthening patient engagement. And this sort of shows you some of the goals that we had as we started the initiative. We also were very interested in finding ways to improve physician workforce satisfaction. We thought we could do that by improving the work and improving the patient and the trainee experience. Um, these are the components, and as we did this, we were essentially learning as we were going, because we had not done something like this before, but so um, relied on other experts to come work with us. But we created a learning collaborative, which in some ways was like an IHI breakthrough series um, kind of collaborative. We consisted of learning sessions. We had three of these a year where practices would come together. There would be some didactic portion. They would learn from one another, share best practices, and also plan um, the next several months of work. We had monthly webinars um, where people uh, called in and learned about what others were doing and were often focused on, on, on some relevant issue. We had day-to-day -day leaders as well as project managers who were in uh, constant touch. And then we also required monthly transformation updates, which was really data reports on how the practices were doing.
So I seem to be stuck here. There we go. Um, so we also knew that we needed a curriculum for this, and the curriculum became um, the what we call the Qualis Change Concepts. Around the same time, I think some of you may recall, there was something called the Safety Net Medical Home Initiative that was funded by the Commonwealth Fund, and it was really a process of medical home transformation within practices. This was done, done itself without a curriculum, but by in the process of doing this, Qualis Health, a group out of um, Seattle led by Jonathan Sugarman, was able to sort of systematically look at what the sequence was happening sequentially in as uh, what they went through practice change and came up with this model, which actually became a model that we ended up using. And in fact, now CMMI is using a model very much like this in their work in practice transformation. And it served as a really important guide for us. To review it really quickly, um, you, you can see that uh, laying the foundation, well, this is actually, these are ordered. So as you, you go from bottom to top, where you're starting at the bottom, laying the foundation are the things that you do first. Having engaged leadership was really key. Um, this meant leadership both at the practice level as well as at the C-suite level. And so we ran a leadership academy where we trained up um, medical leaders and medical directors of practices. Well, at the same time, we invited C-suite leaders to come to our learning sessions where they heard presentations by the team so they could get engaged and help address barriers that the teams may be facing as they were working to transform care. Quality improvement was really basic to all of the change. Most of the practices used the IHI PDSA cycle approach, um, and we provided uh, sort of expertise in learning how to do that for, for practices that weren't familiar with it. Building relationships was nice. Was was next. Um, There's a term that I, in fact, wasn't even um, uh, aware of when we got started called impanelment. Um, I knew I had a panel of patients. I thought I knew who they were. It turned out when we looked carefully at our practices, only about 60% of patients could be linked to primary care teams, and that's in my own practice. You know, it probably explained why every year we were losing a third of our patients, and we didn't really know who they were, and um, we had particular problems in connecting our residents patients to residents in ways that we could stay responsible for their care as residents were, were transitioning. So the teams had to spend a lot of time thinking about how we um, panel, and that became, became an, early, um, uh, an early area of work. And next was really creating teams, and this was the crux of what we were trying to do. We were creating teams of people who worked together. In my own practice, we had structural teams where I could tell you who was on the team, but in fact, very little of the work was done collaboratively, and it was really sort of transitioning so that we were sharing tasks. In my own practice, as an example, um, with the dollars that the hospital committed, they ended up bringing on seven LPNs who took over things like um, immunizations and wound care and things like that. So it really became uh, um, offloaded physicians of things that we had been doing and really did not um, uh, require someone of our expertise to do. The most um, complex task was actually care coordination. And you can see, at least in this structure, that's something that's done last. As it happened, all the Harvard institutions that signed on to the Pioneer uh, ACO at that time were very focused on how they might improve care management. What I think this led to is actually having care managers embedded in primary care practices. So we felt that we had an opportunity to potentially show cost savings fairly early because we're doing care management and coordination at the same time we're building teams who could work with the care managers. 
Now I'll share with you some of our results. This is um, from something called the Patient-Centered Medical Home Assessment, PCMHA. This was also developed by Qualys, was validated, and it was something that we asked the teams to, con to complete um, at six-month intervals. And when I refer to teams, by the way, there, so at the, at the learning sessions, we had transformation teams can't come. They were multidisciplinary. They were the ones who were responsible for change within their practice. We also required that patients and trainees be members of those teams, so we had patients coming to the learning summit, to the learning sessions, and we had patients participating in sort of the operational work that was going on in the practices. And these actually, um, it's a little bit hard to read uh, because of the direction of the writing, but these, uh, the, the takeaway from this is if you looked across all of the change concepts of the Qualys change concepts, we were seeing improvement in each one over time, with the most dramatic improvement early on. Now these are some data that gives you some sense of who the patients were that we were working with, and um, if we just look at the means, we had almost 15,000 patients per practice, 3.3 um, encounters per unique patient. This meant we had almost 20 practices, so we had almost 300,000 patients within our practices. You can see that a substantial portion of these patients were Medicaid, so these um, were, you know, included challenging patients to care for. Um, um, because of resource constraints, and so 32%, whereas another 17% were Medicare. You can also see sort of the distribution when you look at patient characteristics, where almost 30% were Hispanic or Latino, and another 20% were African American. I think both because of our focus on, on teaching practices, which cared for diverse populations within our hospitals, as well as the community health centers, meant that we had a very diverse patient population, and um, nearly a third of our patients required interpreter services. These are data that look at what happened to staff ratios. As I mentioned, our practices were among the most under-resourced. Generally, in fact, the hospital-based practices had fewer resources than the community-based practices did. And you can see that one of the things that we did accomplish was an increase in the number of staff per uh, physician FTE. The total non-physician staff actually went from um, 45 to 67. This is per 10 FTE, so it went up um, almost 20, which is two people per physician. Um, and clinical staff, we saw growth in nurse practitioners, medical assistants, registered nurses, social workers remained um, relatively stable, but we also saw growth in community health workers. And these are data that are really just breaking, and we've just seen these, so um, uh, the analysis hasn't been completed. And what I'll share with you is utilization data. We are we are focused from the very beginning on showing return on investment, where we would lower health care costs while at the same time improving quality, and we felt that's what we needed to demonstrate in order for this to be sustainable over time. And what this shows that is that, in fact, we were able to reduce emergency room visits as well as hospitalizations. And to a fairly striking degree. Um, outpatient visits, to our surprise, went um, down a little bit. That wasn't something that we were necessarily anticipating. But I think what the practices did is they better coordinated care. They moved to less visit-based care. And so there are fewer um, uh, visits overall. Emergency room use decreased by 8%, hospitalizations by almost 20%, and if you looked at ambulatory sensitive emergency room visits and ambulatory sensitive hospitalizations, the numbers were even higher at 9% and almost 30%. 
the cost data are still being cleaned, so I can't tell you how this translated into cost, but when, since we know that hospitalization is a major driver of cost, I expect we'll see cost savings. The question again will be whether this is actually greater than the investment, but the investment that we were making, um, even though a million dollars here and a million dollars there, that sounds like a lot of money, these are actually large practices, so it amounted to about $2.50 per member per month, which is actually a very small investment relative to um, the dollars that were being spent within these practices. What we also achieved was improvement in team dynamics, and we were working with a team from the School of Public Health who did staff surveys uh, every year. They actually surveyed every member of the staff, so from the health the medical assistant to the, um, to the physicians and, and leadership, and saw improvement in um, the different um, measures that you see here. Um, I won't go through them individually, but again, I think the, the basic message is that staff and team dynamics are improving. This led to improvements in actually satisfaction uh, in care as well. And this included um, not just the staff in the practice, but also um, the residents. One might ask then, so how, would it, how is it that we were able to um, be successful? And I think there are a number of factors. One is that we really did stress leadership, and we had um, effective leadership and continued to work on that. We actually had change in leadership uh, over the course of the study where medical directors changed who didn't really have the interest or capacity to make the kinds of changes that need to be made in practices. But we spent a lot of time working on leadership and engaging the C-suite leaders as well. We did provide financial resources. As we'll talk about, primary care is substantially under-resourced and we needed to have more resources in order to build teams. Um, engaging patients and families was key and for us we actually required, as I mentioned, we required this, that patients be involved in operations within the practice and be on the transformation team and we saw that practices that adopted that more quickly actually showed more progress. Um, we need to develop competence in management, improvement in coaching and that we did through different programs. Um, health information technology we saw is very important. I would say that actually was one of our failures in the sense that we were had relatively little influence over the health information technology systems that were being used. We're constantly frustrated by our inability to get reports out of those systems and certainly couldn't get data that really crossed across the six systems. So many of our practices, even though they're functioning within technology meccas um, or places that many would describe that way, they were using Excel spreadsheets or actually paper and pencil to keep track of whether patients were getting follow-up for rectal bleeding and things like that. Um, care coordination was really key, and we were very fortunate, as I've said, that, that our, all of our institutions were beginning um, with a pioneer um, uh, ACO, so we're beginning to bring in care management activities. And then staff development is really key, and this is one of the things that we worked on through the leadership, uh, through the learning sessions. Now, going back to thinking about um, primary care more generally, you know, some of the challenges we face um, is one is around financing. As I mentioned, there aren't enough resources, and also the resources that come to primary care come in fee-for-service. So it often requires us to do things that many of us might consider wasteful, but actually are a way that we actually are able to, um, to pay the bills. The RVU schedule for primary care visits undervalues the role and skills of primary care, leading to under-resourcing. In primary care, 
um, and is not alone in this, but primary care faces challenging work-life balances, high rates of physician and staff burnout, workforce shortage, and lower salaries and prestige compared to other specialties. As we've thought about this, we've really tried to think about defining what a new vision for primary care um, might look like. Um, we'd like to think this is revolutionary. It's possibly more evolutionary, and, and this probably aligns with, um, with many of your thoughts about this. But first, that payment must adequately support primary care and reward value that relationships are going to continue to provide value in primary care and will increasingly, though, be fostered by teams, improve clinical operations, and by technology. We need to find ways to leverage that. Generalist physicians we see as increasingly focusing on high acuity and high complexity presentations. We think that much of what we do that's routine can be reduced to algorithms that other members of our teams can do this and allows us to focus on the patients with most complex needs. And then primary care itself needs to refocus on whole person care. I think we moved away from that in some ways because of our, our view payment system. We don't address health behaviors. We know which that are a huge component of the health of our, uh, of our patients. And we don't address social service needs, but need to be um, doing that more. And to go through these um, in a little detail, um, payment, I, as I mentioned, is very important. I think most people would, would agree. Um, as it happens, enlightened integrated, enlightened integrated healthcare systems generally have redistributed fee-for-service revenue, meaning that practices, that organizations that are, that are still collecting fee-for-service revenue often will move those that revenue around in order to provide what they might call a subsidy in primary care. And in fact, that's a pretty Pretty common practice at academic medical centers. Unfortunately, I think we get into trouble and in that primary care requires a subsidy. I would really, as when I was division chief, I, often, I usually talked about that as an investment because there really is a return on that, and unlike um, what often happens in subsidies. Um, and in these leading systems, primary care investment generally amounts to 10% of total costs, which is really twice the average. As I mentioned, the usual um, primary care spend is about 5%. You know, Iora Health, and I know there's a practice here in town, um, spends 10%, and that really is probably a minimum that's needed to provide the kinds of services that, that our patients need from, from us. Um, we also think that as we move away from volume, we'll actually have stronger relationships with our patients because rather than having punctuated relationships, um, we'll move towards more continuous virtual relationships. The center has been working on something called the primary care practice policy model, and I won't go through this in, in too much detail, but it's a model that allows, it's a mathematical model that allows us to look at essentially the profit and loss statement of primary care practices across the country. And we've been able to use it to um, test the impact of new payment strategies. We published on this, um, looking at the chronic care management fee within um, primary care practices. We've looked at the, the implications of adding a nurse practitioner versus a physician, how to think about that financially. And most recently, what we've done is we've actually looked at the way that primary care transformation has generally been paid for in this country, which is a fee-for-service plus a per-member-per-month fee or um, performance incentives. And what we found, though, is that in those um, payment systems that the fee-for-service uh, payment is such, so strong relative to, other, to every other um, resource that's, that comes with with that, that practices are still driven to do provide volume rather than value. 
We then asked the question as well, what if we changed the capitation? What if we take, took those same dollars and looked at capitation where practices were given the dollars and the dollars came independent of whether you're actually seeing patients in, in visits and asked at what percent at, at what percent of patients would need to be capitated in order to really transition away from the way we generally do our care. And it turned out that using this model, we, about seven, if 70% of your patients are capitated, then that actually would change the incentive away from doing volume because no longer would you want to see be seeing patients over and over again. You'd rather actually expand panel. And because of the now the panel incentive and practices would be incented to take care of more patients and do so more efficiently by doing more non-visit based care, potentially having nurses do things that physicians were doing. You have to worry less about whether the physician's there to actually do the billing. So it led us really to favor capitation as a way to um, pay for primary care as we move forward, especially if we're going to move to high-value services. In terms of um, uh, relationships, as I mentioned, we think relationships will continue to serve as the bedrock of value in primary care. Um, organizations must focus on teaming, on task redistribution. Generalist physicians will play an important role in the diagnosis and management of complex or high acuity clinical presentations, and that customer patients aided by well-designed technology will take on new tasks. I know that you have opened a form of open notes here. I, you know, there's just there's a question as to whether patients will start getting engaged in writing their own notes and doing more of the things that right now we are taking care of as, as physicians. And healthcare organizations themselves will optimize for rapid, reliable information exchange. Um, just as an illustration, this is an example of um, what Kaiser has done for blood pressure control. And um, to go through this um, uh, uh, fairly quickly, the x-axis shows time, the y-axis shows control of hypertension. Does anybody know what the average, or from this, sort of what the average in, in your own practice percentage of patients have adequate hypertension control? 50%, 60%, yeah, so that's about, you know, where it is, and yeah, and that's where Kaiser was. And you can see, so the um, the boxes are what was happening in California, the um, triangles were what were happening nationally, and then the circles were what was happening at Kaiser. And you can see as you follow Kaiser around, along that they started about 40%. By 2005, we're above 70%, and in 2009, we're close to 80%. They're now at 85%, which sounds really re remarkable. Does anybody know how Kaiser actually achieved this? Did they have some drug that the rest of us don't have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they really don't. They, what they've done is they've made it a routine that's actually staffed by medical assistants and nurses. So they've taken it away from physicians. They've actually um, made it a routine algorithmic um, part of care and have been able to um, to achieve these, these wonderful results. And it really shows, I think, the capacity of moving some of the things that we're doing and we do individually to teams and how that can actually both offload us of things that we might be doing while at the same time resulting in better patient outcomes. 
So what happens if we actually give up some of these things that we're doing? I mentioned I don't give immunizations anymore. Blood pressure control potentially could go to someone else. You know, what am I left with? Should we be worried that there's nothing for primary care doctors to do? And, um, and I actually think there's plenty, you know, for us to do. There probably will be fewer of us to do it, so it's going to be actually really critical that we make this, these changes. But I think that generalist physicians should increasingly focus on high acuity and high complexity presentations. That's the thing that I think we're training our students to do, and that's things, the things that we're prepared to do, especially at places like this. And primary care teams will collaborate to manage conditions that specialists manage in the past. Um, examples might be doing palliative care within primary care practices, um, but generalist physicians focusing on high-stakes patients. We also think that better technology and payment arrangement as well as better clinical um, operations will facilitate us um, taking on sort of more of this um, work, take caring for our patients with complex care needs. And then finally, we think that primary care teams um, will need to support health and wellness by managing most routine mental illness. So this is really all about integration, and I know you have integrated behavioral health, so we're moving in this direction, supporting healthy lifestyles and by more effectively integrating with other social services. This is an area that most of our practices are really um, not moving forward in at all. The community health centers clearly do a much better job than our teaching practices, but it's where we're exploring the use of community health health workers, and you saw, for example, the percentage of community health workers has increased within our practices. As we look to the future, what is, um, I think, most exciting to us is really what we see coming from, from our students. Um, this was a paper that was written by students in the first year of the, um, of the Center for Primary Care. And they said, it's vital to our country's health to cultivate the future of primary care. As learners and aspiring leaders in this field, we recognize that improving the health of our country must begin with transforming primary care. That transformation requires leadership, teamwork, and willingness to change. We are here to engage in and advance the movement. So those are the students that we get a chance to interact with every day that really do inspire us. Um, I mentioned Andrew Morris Singer. He leads Primary Care Progress. I know you have a Primary Care Progress chapter, and I just heard that one of our f former faculty's son is actually leading the chapter here at, uh, at Dartmouth. And um, that's really been a galvanizing force across the country. Everywhere I go, it seems there's a Primary Care Progress chapter, what Andrew's leading is really training up those teams for positions of innovation and leadership and excitement around primary care. Within the center, um, our chapter we call the Student Leadership Committee. When the center was first formed, I'd, we had this idea that we would have students advising us on what to do at the first meeting. They said we don't want to be advisors, we want to be leaders, so they changed their name from Student Advisory Council to Student Leadership Committee, and uh, over time have really become leaders within our program in the way that the student co-chairs of this committee come to our leadership staff meetings. Um, we staff them with resources within the center. They have a budget to manage, and they um, both work in an integrated way with the faculty in the center, but also pursue some of their own projects. The um, picture to the 
um, to the left is the um, the first group. Last year's group is the is the one on your right. You can see there's been growth over time. We started with 12 students on our student leadership committee. We now have uh, 35. The students have also made it interprofessional. So we have students who are physician assistants and nurse practitioners that are actually coming from Harvard school from other schools because Harvard, in fact, lacks um, other professional schools. I'll close with a quick summary. Um, you know, I do think that we need a primary care revolution. It'll improve care, leading to better health outcomes. This change, however, is going to require highly effective leadership, um, some of which will be the leaders that come out of primary care progress, management, advocacy, and continuous process improvement. There needs to be an evolution in workforce training. And actually, I think that also means for some of us, I think many of us have been working in systems so long where we've been um, unable to sort of manage the complexity of illness that we're used to transitioning patients to specialists. We need to take that care back, use um, e-consult, use things like ECHO, uh, the ECHO model to train up ourselves so that we can take on some of these uh, more complex skills again. Um, but we do believe that change should improve the daily work that we do and draw us closer to our ideals of humanism and scientific rigor. So thank you very much for the opportunity to um, talk to you about what we're doing at Harvard. We actually are very collaborative, and I have some meetings this morning. I'd love to talk with people about ways that we might collaborate um, with Dartmouth. You're not far away, and, um, and I think there's certainly opportunities to, uh, to work together. So thanks very much. Personalizes, uh, focuses on personalized care and relationship. Um, and how do you look toward what you highlighted is an important part of care, um, scaling uh, in team care with a 6.7 to 1 ratio of staff to uh, providers, um, the complexity handoffs associated with that, and cost and support, um, anything close to that uh, small unit of care? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the question is, how do you do this for small practices? You know, in places like Massachusetts, many of those small practices are really going away. So it's been been less of an issue um, for us, and they're integrating or combining. Um, what I think can happen, though, is that there's going to be technology that should con you know connect us. So things like e-consult can work across you know practices. That you don't need to have a specialist within your practice. Um, Echo can train up those small practices to take on things that maybe they're not doing, and that's been the example of what Sanjeev Aurora has done in New Mexico with training of small and small rural practices to take care of patients with hepatitis C. And then I think there can be resources for teams that actually span practices. So in Vermont, for instance, the community health teams provide care managers that may relate to several practices, and I think that's sort of going to need to be sort of how some of these resources will come to these small practices and part-time aliquots, that some of which will be virtual. And how do you flip the advantages of small practices to large team practices? 
Yeah, so that's actually an interesting question. The, question is, the, the advantage is the personalized care um, that you're referring to. And we found, you know, that I didn't present data on this, but patients actually are um, generally very supportive of team-based care. They're um, relatively easy, can easily can transition that connection to different members of the team as long as they have a sense the team is working together and knows them um, as well as whoever their primary you know, caregiver is. So I think that is possible uh, as well. So you know, maybe jumped off from that question and um, you know, the value of relationship is so important. Anyone who's in a patient understands that and the literature would suggest that that therapeutic relationship may be the most important medicine that we have. Um, so tension between efficiency versus personalized care, and personalized care actually in your position. I certainly understand this issue around team and how people can affect other members of the team. It doesn't need to be a physician per se. But things such as creating call centers where the secretary is not part of the team, in my experience, I don't practice it now, but I used to practice it in medicine. My secretary knew the patients as well as anyone else. She could answer as many questions as many of the other part of the team. We actually do have a practice here that's similar to that, that has a secretary embedded in the team. Mm -hmm. uh, that I think people, especially the team as well as the patients, really appreciate. So I'm just curious about your thoughts about this tension between some of the efficiencies that we can build in uh, with things like call centers and central scheduling versus uh, you know, trying to keep a smaller team in all that yeah, you know, I think these are really interesting, important questions. I'm not sure I'll have adequate answers. I know within our own practice, we tried to centralize functions like that, and in fact, they um, it created a lot of waste and efficiency within the practice. So we actually then decentralized it. So we have nurses that are now attached to teams. We have medical assistants that are attached to teams, and so. You know, so we've done that, um, you know, within our practice, and it's made sense for our practice. I think the challenge, you know, with call centers, I think there are ways to also try to provide continuity within those call centers. If I were setting up a call center for my practice, I'd really want to make sure that there was a dedicated person or, you know, that was connected and really understood and knew the practice. I mean, that's true for care managers in the community as well. They need to be connected to you and to the practice uh, in order to work effectively. Rich, hold your question for a second, right behind you. Oh, I, uh, I wonder if you and your work in primary care innovation have done any formal work with ethicists and analysis around those issues. And I bring it up because we had a recent debate in our local paper about length of visits. And there was some unfortunate publicity around our length of visit time being shortened, and the public understandably said, oh, you know, that Starbucks being bad, shortening those visits and those resources. I found myself thinking about the ethical implications and that for every hour or 45 minutes that I spend with a pretty healthy person, there's some kid out there on opiates who's not getting a primary care visit. And it's a complicated issue of distributing these resources, which I think gets to the discussion of team and roles and who should be doing what. Um, and as it gets skittier and more emotional, I find myself wanting to consult 
Yeah, you know, so so the question is about our work with ethicists, and I should say that we have not gone in that direction. It sounds like a very interesting direction to, you know, to go. I think certainly there are ethical issues around, you know, quality and whether we're providing the right experience as we continue to cut back on the um, n number of minutes that we have available um, with our patients. As I've said, I think there are things that we don't need to be doing. Actually, there's a lot of question about the value of the annual visit. I see it chiefly as a way to maintain relationships, but I also have patients that go back with me for 25 years, and I think over telephone and email, I can maintain that relationship without necessarily having a face-to-face -face visit in the absence of ongoing medical issues that, that need to be addressed. I spend half of my session you know, doing those annual visits and leaving less time for the patients who might have end-of-life care issues or other chronic illnesses that really that, that I should be spending more time with. Uh, you know, I don't know about cost differences because um, I haven't seen those. The VA provides high-quality care. They've had an initiative called PACT, which are patient-aligned care teams, and so they've done their medical home transformation. They've invested well over a billion dollars to do that. Just a quick set question, uh, uh, comment about my son, the one who would have liked to come here to Dartmouth and wasn't able to. Um, he ended up, uh, he's now a resident in internal medicine at Yale, and he works at within the VA, which is Center of Excellence for Primary Care at the West Haven VA. And when I tell him my stories about primary care, he says, Dad, I don't know what you're talking about, but the VA, primary care is not broken. At the VA, you know, we have e-consults. I do warm handoffs with behavioral health providers. I have an effective team. Team, and I actually have a preceptor that loves what he does. And, um, and and that actually becomes the competition. You know, when I was division chief, I had to work to keep faculty within our system who had done some training within the VA and wanted to go to the VA. And I just think that's an example of a high-functioning system that we can actually use as a model, you know, for, for our work. Let me come over to Peter, and then we'll come into the room. I have a question for you about the technology platform aspect of this. Uh, Obviously, as spanning the time frame that you're talking about here, you guys, partners, have been going up on that. Um, it's, it's quite interesting that Kaiser, sort of, which is the is the high bar for a lot of the stuff as you're talking about, is, is on it and did a lot of this work of re-empowering staff to do regular tasks in, in the Epic frame. Have you guys, you've, how, how's getting on Epic for you guys sort of affected the project? Is, are you accelerating, learning things from Kaiser and incorporating it in, or has it sort of taken a step back as you redo that technology? Yeah, so I can't speak from direct experience because actually I work at Beth Digital Deaconess, which has not gone to Epic. Um, Partners has at a cost of, I think, $1.5 billion, and it has really ground things to a halt pretty much for a period of time. And um, yeah, and, and so that's been, you know, been a huge challenge. I think people are beginning to see what they hope will be some of the benefits in terms of population health and reporting, um, but the transitional cost. Is high. I guess I would just say I would make the pitch that the places like Kaiser prove that if we engage with this, we can use that platform in a, in a real way. And I, but I think clearly it takes a lot of energy and time, and I'm not surprised that the primary care specific clinics 
going up on a new platform like ground to a halt. I, I think it also is an argument for us as we try to take this stuff to scale to work with the best of breed epic places mm -hmm. to not reinvent the wheel every time, which we often try to do, but to actually say, okay, share with us how you did this, how you set it up, because the setup is not trivial. Yeah. I think that that's a really good point. We've set up epic learning communities within our collaborative because, in fact, other than BIDMC and Children's, all the other hospitals are either on epic or going to epic, and there is a lot to learn from each other. Also, installation is different, and it's not so necessarily easy to share what you're um, doing, you know, across systems. But all very good points. Um, I'm asking a question for the leader of our primary care service line who's listening from the community group practices, so I'll give her credit. She said she asked, when you're leading a revolution, how do you know when you're successful? And her point is that so many of the national benchmarks that were all held to are pre-revolution, so what are the right metrics and, and how do you know what success looks like? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to float it to Andrew Moore Singer, but uh, uh, but I know you asked me. You know, I I think you know what we're looking. You know, we we started at Harvard when we had our task force, um, and actually Al might remember the students would say that they'd heard from faculty that you're too smart to go into primary care. Why aren't you doing something else? And so there are things you know that were really cultural that we knew we needed to change, and we. See evidence that culture is changing. Students are excited about primary care. They come to the center to work. They see primary care as a way to make a difference. So those are some, you know, those are some of the metrics. Um, we're trying to measure those. Um, you know, some of those things are hard to measure. What we haven't done is we haven't seen more students going into primary care. At Harvard, there's not really an effort to direct students in any direction, but rather to help them to find sort of what they want to do and then support them in excelling in it. Um, we do think that we're changing sort of the career trajectories of those students who are doing primary care, and they're headed more towards uh, towards leadership. Um, I do think we need to change the conversation about metrics. You know, it's like for in my own practice, although we are paid, as I mentioned, as an ACO, more than 70% of our patients are capitated. My productivity is measured in terms of RVUs, and I'm paid in terms of RVUs, and you know that's that really needs to change. And I. Can you know, there's a task force actually at MGH in the Brigham right now that's thinking about paying very differently in ways that are aligned with the payment incentives that exist for the ACL. Ben? Um, you, you talked about internists being more focused on high acuity and complex patients. You also talked about associate providers being able to provide equal or greater reliability and lower cost. And we also have specialists that have developed paradigms like in heart failure where their outcomes are actually improved with highly specialized specialists providing care. Could you talk a little bit about how you're working with trainees about the identity of the general internist in the future in the context of all these changes with hospitalists, associate providers, palliative care docs that also have their own issues? Yeah, you know, I do. Um, I mean, there's a literature on the question about subspecialists being able to do better. You know, if you're talking about a single problem and measure cardiologists around a cardiology problem versus prim primary care around that same problem, you'll often see that cardiologists do better. Most of our patients don't have a single problem, and that cardiologist is only dealing with a single problem. Most of our patients have three to four to five different problems. So I think the identity is really around being able to manage patients who are complex and not because they have a single disease 
but because they have multiple. And that's really what um, you know is characteristic among our older um, population. And I think we'll just be seeing more of. So I think that's where the identity is. At BIDMC, as I was stepping down from division chief, we're just creating a new primary care. Um, uh, residency program and within that we built in long blocks that are six months at a time in primary care so they spend a full two, uh, 12 months in primary care and within that they're spending time within the heart failure clinic so and some continued continuity time so they're managing patients with advanced heart failure that we aren't necessarily exposing them to in primary care they're doing the same with patients with chronic lung disease with chronic liver disease so that they are really learning the skills to be able to manage these patients and I I think we should be taking some of these things, offloading specialists, so the specialists themselves can really focus on the patients they're most um, well-trained to take care of, which are the, the very complex patients. I know there are more comments and questions, and I encourage you to come up and meet with Dr. Phillips afterward. Thank you for being here. Yeah.